It's Thursday, the 4th of March. Welcome to our afternoon sport deep dive. I'm Tim Gilbert, and I'm joined by my co-host, Shane Lee. Shane, have you been in the kitchen recently? A lot of, a lot of people don't know this, but you're quite the chef. I do enjoy my cooking, yeah. I, um, I cooked a, uh, a beautiful... Uh, uh, Asian uh, soup last night, which is really, really nice. Chicken and plenty of chilli, mate. So, it was, yeah, very good for the soul. The kids all eat it? Um, not so much with the chilli in it, no, but it, I, I'm generally cooking two or three meals for the kids these days. It's like a like a bloody restaurant around here. <laughs> it is amazing, isn't it? Oh, I won't eat I that. I don't want to eat that. Give me sausages. <laughs> I want nuggets. You have, your, you have your own soup. All right. That's it. That's enough. We do digress. We've got a great show on the way. A man that loves his food as well, but he is the voice of cycling, and it's going to be a real treat to talk to him on Afternoon Sport Phil Liggett is with us, and Brett Kamali, former Clive Churchill medalist in a rugby league grand final, of course, is here to chat NRL. Aaron Finch, well, had a bit of luck, Shane, but uh, back in the runs uh, with a half century, and that'll uh, keep the wolves at bay, so to speak. Yep, I called it yesterday, mate. I said he'd get some runs. Um, yeah, 69 off 44 balls, but it was Maxwell, uh, 70 off only 31 balls, and Australia winning the match, and Ashton Agar, who we thought may not start in the match, took his career best figure, 6 for 30 off 4 and Riley Meredith, two, two for 22 or four. Yeah, Australia back in the series now with um, two, one down with two to go. So we can still win from here. Yeah, and Australia will be cheering uh, England, of all people, to beat India in this test that starts today because the bottom line is if India win, that knocks us out of the whole world championship thing. It does, mate. And uh, yeah, so it'll be the first time that the Aussies actually going for England <laughs> um, uh, in the history of the game, I think. But uh, if England win this test match, as you said, uh, we go into the world test final and um, that'd be huge but I would dare say it'd be very very unlikely that England can turn around and win this test match. Yeah it's not going to be the world's best pitch is it? <laughs> no it's going to it's going to turn and bounce and uh, and after the way they batted last uh, last two tests I dare say we're not going to be in that world test final. Now look on, on a quite serious note change is changing tack um, Eddie Maguire yeah. seems to be really struggling at the moment um, after what has gone on in Melbourne at Collingwood Um that's the thing, isn't it? Regardless of someone's profile, someone's wealth, someone's prominence, everyone's a human being at the end of the day. They sure are, mate. And uh, yeah, so Eddie has not pretty much been seen at all um, since standing down as the Collingwood chairman. On top of that, he's really, really good close mate, Michael Kodinsky, um, passed away this week. So it's a bit of a double blow for him. And um, and sources saying that, uh, you know, friends close to him are saying they're really concerned about, you know, Eddie um, and, and his mental health at this stage. And um, yeah, it would be a big loss, particularly being in around, um, you know, Collingwood uh, for that long. It, uh, it would be like losing someone close to you as well as losing someone close to you in Kodinsky. Yeah, and I think we need to, to – we've said it before, both you and I on this program, is that um, although that, mm. you know, he, he didn't get everything right, he did an amazing job for Collingwood. He's been an extraordinary sort of figure sure, in yeah. and across the game. So, um, yeah, let's hope that he can get through this difficult time. Uh, just finally, this is a massive – I know we're changing tack a little bit here in our uh, deep dive chat, but on a much lighter note, what about this Australian, Australian over there at the World uh, Skiing Championship? who's gone out there in some shorts and a singlet. This is uh, the ultimate Australian sporting move. 
<laughs> How tough are Australians? <laughs> um, no, it's uh, it's uh, it's interesting to see, mate. But uh, you're going to be pretty tough to be out there in your old um, your, your singlet and, and, and your boardies in the middle of the snow. But uh, you know, Australians always flying the flag overseas, mate. It's good to see. Yeah, I remember doing that wild winter weekend. I hosted it for a long time at Wild World of Sports. People coming down in their speedos, and they were Australian weather conditions, not German, where it's sort of uh, minus twenty-five. <laughs> All right, coming up on afternoon sport, they call him Noddy. He was a mighty, mighty rugby league player, Brett Kamali. Well, as Rex Mossop used to say, we could almost smell the liniment rugby league. We are a week away. And with that, uh, former Clive Churchill medalist rugby league legend, Brett Kamali, how are you? Excellent, Simi. You're right. The smell is in the air, isn't it? You know, we're, we're a, couple of, a couple of days short of the NRL kicking off last weekend for everyone. And uh, very curious how the competition is going to run with, with hopefully no COVID. Mm. And Brett, uh, early calls, mate. What are you t- who, are you, who are you tipping for this season? I think South Sydney will be the team to beat. Um, wow. I think that Jai Arrow joining them has made their middle forwards much better. Uh, a fit with Terrell Mitchell. Not many sides have got too much depth in the in the key positions. So I think uh, if South Sydney get an injury through the 7-6 or 9, they've got a guy called Benji Marshall that goes half okay on the bench. Mm. What about Joseph Suwali? This has been the talking point, hasn't it? This uh, schoolboy, uh, he's, 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 oh, he's a schoolboy, but he, he's a huge man. He scored a couple of tries for Norths, uh, who are the feeder team to the Roosters. A lot of speculation on whether he'll play first grade before he turns 18. That would mean that the NRL has to change the rules. What What is your personal take on if you're old if you're good enough you're old enough yeah you're right I remember having lots of coaches when I was a bit younger do the other if you're good enough you're old enough concept but what we saw on Saturday afternoon after he made his impressive debut for North Sydney was lots of lots of media speculation how good he's going Sunday's newspapers were all about um, this kid's ready this kid's good enough this kids will handle it but you're right, Timmy. At 17 years of age, I think you know you're still a fair bit immature. Uh, you still got a fair bit of growing to do. Um, he handled one game of football. So if we think about all the guys that have played NRL football over the last 10, 20 years at a young age, they've all sort of been burnt and, spot, and spat out in some regards very, very quickly. So mm. um, Jordan Rankin, Josh Hannay um, were two guys that were played at the age of 16, and, and literally their careers were over nearly by the age of 20, 25 years of age. So it's a fair bit of pressure to put a young kid under. A fair bit of um, sort of physical drain more than the, than the um, is he big enough? Is he strong enough? How does he handle the actual game of football? So uh, I'm, I think if he's going to have a career, why can't we wait? Why can't we wait till he's 18? And, you know, there's no age limit now on a career. I think Cameron Smith retired at the age of 37. Mm. Um, so that we're playing a lot long, longer than we used to in the old days. I think they used to get about 30, 31 and go, oh, mate, your career's over. So um yeah, I, I, I think I would like to think that we'd be quite happy to wait till he's technically 18 before he makes his debut. Hey, Brett, the role, the role that coach has always spoken about, particularly leading into the season, um, and we saw Wayne Bennett uh, have success in the State of Origin last year. Who were some of the, the great coaches you played under? Oh, I think Chris Anderson was always a, a coach that I enjoyed playing under. Um, become a bit more of a mentor of mine. He was a person that mm. played that flat and fast and over the advantage line type of attack. So, um, yeah, I think... Players have great rapport with some coaches, but I think the coaches they have better rapport with are the ones that play the style of footy they that they enjoy playing, or that yeah. they um, or they've helped them in their life. You know, so um, yeah, I, I did play under Craig Bellamy and also Wayne Bennett at um, at State of at with the Australian side, but 
Mm. They're, they're all got their own different traits, their own different styles, if that makes any sense. Yep. Like Wayne's that, that player manager, um, look after the players. Um, you know, Chris was always a bit, a little bit technical, but not too technical. But again, it's very similar, which is care about the care about you and, and, and so trust in you. And then obviously there's other coaches that are, that are so technically um, minded that they, they don't, well, they don't care about the player manager side of it, things, but they're more the astute coach, you know. So, will Cameron Smith play? Do you think, Brett? It's the million dollar question. It's uh, if he doesn't play, it's been the as I mentioned it the other day, it's been the, the greatest keep your cards close to your chest I've ever seen in your life for, for, for no return. But what do you make of all that? Oh, uh, yeah, Cameron Smith, I would have thought he would have played, and we know he had told the Melbourne Storm he wasn't going to play from it in the last year, so I would have thought he would have played for the Broncos. Or the Gold Coast, but he's cost himself a, probably a little bit of money in some regards because you would have thought he would have had a media deal by now. As well. Do you think it's a, he's having a bit of a go back at the media for giving him a hard time by not not answering? Maybe, yeah. I, yeah. And again, you know, we don't have to tell the media what we're doing in some regards, but no. Cameron Smith has certainly done that. He's been pretty heavily criticised for a long, long time, and um, you know, I, I think living in Melbourne has kept him out of the media spotlight in some regards. You know, mm. they certainly have it a lot easier than anyone that plays in Sydney or in Brisbane over the last. 18 years of their career. So, yeah, I, I find it very interesting. You know, obviously, it's weird. I would have thought he would, he would play on because of how great he played last year and the yeah. fact that he finished the grand final. But maybe he doesn't want to play against Melbourne. Uh, maybe he's happy to live on the Gold Coast. Maybe he's happy just to ride off into the sunset and think that um, take 12 months away from the game and, and, and then come back in some coaching capacity or yeah. some media capacity or, or it certainly won't be playing capacity because if he doesn't play this year, I would certainly think he won't play next year. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, he's certainly his own man. That's one thing about Cameron Smith. He's his own man. He's been an extraordinary player, polarizing. They in many, call many him ways. the Tim Gilbert, apparently. That's what he's been <laughs> The Tim Gilbert. <laughs> he's the guy that used to work on the Today Show and eat all the meat pies, isn't he? He's the bloke that, that does whatever he wants to do. That's what he's saying. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's nice of you to say that. Look, mate, it's always a delight to have a chat. I look forward to getting out on the golf course soon, and we'll talk footy again. It's great to have it back. I can't wait also, like being a father of uh, of children that play it, I can't wait to get out there and watch it where we can actually watch it again as well, which is fantastic. Good to talk. Thank you, man. Have a great day. Coming up on Afternoon Sport, the voice of cycling, Phil Liggett. Stump to Stump is Australia's newest and most interactive cricket platform for all cricket fans, players and clubs to share stories, match results, memories and experiences. Stumptostump.com What a special treat it is on Afternoon Sport today. He's a very dear friend of mine and he is the voice of cycling, the mellifluous tones of Phil Liggett, Live from the United Kingdom, how are you, Phil? Well, physically, I'm as fit as a fiddle, um, dodging all the virus, um, had the injection, uh, but we're locked down, Tim, and it's breaking my heart right now. I couldn't get over for the tour down under in January, and normally at this time I'd be in South Africa helping to save the rhinos. That's uh, not going to happen. And I guess I'm going to do the Tour de France from London and who knows, maybe the Olympic Games as well. Phil, before we, before we start talking about cycling, what's the, what's the vibe like in the UK at the moment? You're talking about the, um, the obviously the coronavirus, but is it, is it pretty, still pretty bad there? It is pretty bad, but it's, it's getting better by the day and there's a great air of optimism now, Shane Lee, what is right. going on. You know, we had... Uh, on the, on the bad days back in December, we had 68,000 cases a day. 
Uh, and I know that uh, Australia freaks out when they get five, but we had 68,000. We're down uh, today's figures are the lowest for five months. And uh, I've just seen them on the news here. And that we're down to inside 5,000, which is, you know, everybody's getting quite happy, I must say. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, uh, of course, the vaccination rate in the United Kingdom is, is setting a pace, which is the envy of the world. I think it's 22 million now. So hopefully we can see this big Queen Mary COVID-19 ship turning and life will normalise at some point. Now, you've got this film coming out. I remember doing a TV cross with you last year and they were following you for, for 12 months. Tell us all about it, the voice of cycling. Well, Tim, it seems to have gone on forever, but uh, look was on our side. It's it's filmed by a, a Melbourne film crew, uh, great people uh, who, who followed me, as you say, across three continents. Uh, they started filming it, I think it was 2017, um, 2017, 2018. As they finished the actual filming and were going into post-production in Melbourne, uh, Melbourne got shut down, the virus hit town. And so the producer, Nick, uh, Nick Bird, he had to find... His bike riding skills, he went to the office on his bike and continued post-production for 12 hours a day. And the film is now going to hit the cinemas around Australia on March the 11th. It runs for an hour and 53 minutes and it, it, it totally eclipses what, everything I've done in life since I left school. And yeah. um, I don't, they researched it. I, I mean, I had no, no input into the film. They learned my life so well. They found things I... I never knew I'd even done. And uh, it's, been, it's been a magic three years, I have to say. Phil, what's the state of cycling worldwide these days? It's very, very good. But it's facing monetary problems, I think. Uh, mm. The race, the racing is good. Uh, we've managed to get the season underway across Europe uh, with all the big races so far. But there's no spectators, which is quite an achievement in itself when these races are on the open roads. Yeah. Uh, not letting the spectators out onto the highways. They close the starts and finishes, of course. Um, it's it's getting its fair, fair share on television. I, I can't get to the races. The plans are that the, the first big race I was down to cover was Paris-Roubaix, this famous cycle mm. race in France. And uh, I'm going to do that from London, uh, linking into France. And the actual commentary goes into the United States. And then the Tour de France follows a few, two months after that, and I'll do the Tour de France also from London. Um, COVID did, did, I think, NBC a favour in the States because we did it from London last year from the Sky TV studios. I only found out NBC owned Sky. I didn't even realise it. And so I, got, I went to their studios. They were brilliant. They looked after me hand and foot. There was nobody in the offices, all, all out on their furlough. And we did the race from coming in from France and passing it straight through uh, to America with my co-commentator there, Bob Rowell. And the result was a seamless transmission and the biggest viewing figures for 10 years. So I think that rather inspired them to go for it again in London. Yeah, TV figures have gone through the roof and and it makes sense, doesn't it? Because people can't get off the couch, which for, for, for that, it's uh, it's been very successful. There have been some people that have really benefited through COVID nineteen, and look, we've had to become a little bit introspective. Look, part of the film um, has you looking uh, deeply and transparently about the whole Lance Armstrong saga. Can you give us a little bit of a a look at that and your view? How long's your program, Tim? It's uh... <laughs> just give me the good stuff. We only need to use thirty seconds of it. <laughs> well, the good stuff's been flying around in the last few weeks, I must say, um, because it's all. Always the first question, even now, nearly 15 years on, 
since the situation came to a closure um, with Lance retiring. But uh, yeah, I, I was I used to work with Lance. Uh, he never paid me, but I, I worked with Lance as, a, as an MC at all of his cancer functions. I obviously reported every one of his seven victories in the Tour de France, which were all taken off him uh, because of drugs. He never ever admitted, nor the, neither did he ever get caught taking drugs. I never ever failed a test, and he took dozens of them. But he actually was sort of nailed and forced into a confession, which he did. I think it was 2013 on the Oprah Show, and I was in the I was in the Hilton Hotel in Adelaide for the start of the tour down under, in a private room. The management gave me uh, to listen to the confessions, um, and yeah. I, I was I was saddened by the whole thing. Of course, yes, I had a suspicion, but I never had proof. And I'll tell you a reason. I'm not going to call out this man's a drug taker if, uh, mm. if I've got proof, because I'd be the first one uh, to be sued. And so uh, it came out, he did. And, yeah, well, the bottom line is that uh, Lance and I, uh, well, I don't know if we're still friends or not, because we've never spoken since 2011, except when I did a couple of minutes interview with him on television two years ago, um, and there was no vibes between us, I felt, really. Uh, he just said hi, I said hi. He called me by Paul, he called me Paul, which was a, a real faux pas because you know Paul mm. Sherman, a partner for 33 years, he'd just passed away. Uh, but Lance did apologise, but he, Paul and I were so close, many people called me mm. uh, Paul and and Paul Phil. Uh, yeah, so the situation, that yeah, so Lance is... Uh, is totally out of the sport now. Persona non grata. Did you feel? Did you feel duped by him a bit, Phil? Well, yes, I suppose you. Of course, when you build. At the end of the day, it's the television and the and the press who make the image of these of these people. Uh, if we didn't speak about them and build up their achievements, then they'd never be known by anybody else mm. other than the next door neighbour. So when I spent all of the years of Lance's racing life, from when he became a world champion in Norway in 1993, one of the youngest ever, and then contracting um, cancer, which was so bad. I, in years after that, I met the surgeon who operated on Lance, and he said, Phil, you keep saying that Lance had a 40 or 50% chance of survival. He said, I'll tell you now, we gave him 0% of coming wow. through those And that was from the surgeon who did the operation some years later. Lance beat cancer, literally beat it. And he sat in the road, having ridden five miles on his bike, put his head in his his hands on the roadside and didn't know how he was going to ride back to the hospital. And so Mm -hmm. he was a fighter. So we moved into doing cancer gigs. And at the same time, of course, he, he made his miraculous comeback, whereas he won his return at the Tour de France. And for the next seven years, uh, he was the tour winner. He made a lot of enemies on the way, I think, and they were determined to prove he was doing it on drugs. And in the end, they succeeded. Phil, speaking of the Tour de France, is that your favourite event to call? Yes, I have to say yes, because it's been my total livelihood. I've done 48 tours. And, uh, wow. Uh, whether I ever get to see it again, well, we'll let COVID decide that. But this yeah. year, we're my 49th in, in July. Uh, and therefore, it's shaped my whole career as a, as a professional person, as a mm-hmm. journalist and television commentator. Everybody talks to me as being the voice of cycling, which is the name of the film. And I didn't decide on the name of the film either. And But I think my favourite race is, without doubt, the Tour Down Under in South Australia. I was there in the very beginning, and uh, I wasn't able to go there this year, but I did do some virtual 
stuff out of London over to them. Um, it's a beautiful race, lovely people, and um, I know I know Tim won't agree because he's not from South Australia, but. Some good wine. There's some good wine down there. Oh, look, I've I've eaten I've eaten and, and drunk enough of their stuff, and I remember it so fondly as well because I hosted it for seven years with you and Paul, and so I, I had a. It was it's such a magical time in South Australia, and I mean that leads us to you know the loss of Paul, who you, you know like you were a, one of the great combinations of world sport, world entertainment, Phil and Paul, the Paul and Phil show. Like we used to go and get pies. Yeah, this is very much off the media, but we get pies in every city we'd go to and it'd be one of us that'd have to go and get three. And I, I sort of love tiptoeing into your world for those uh, those weeks that we spent together and God rest his soul, he, he went so quickly. Well, it was a terrible shock because he passed away in his sleep. It was not expected uh, on a Sunday morning, December the 2nd, 2018 in Uganda, it's one of those things I'll never forget. And his, uh, his family phoned me and said, Phil, we've got some bad news. Paul is dead. And I, I was in my little escape in, in South Africa in the Kruger Park, which I, where I have a lodge. Mm-hmm. And I was sat there on an idyllic situation, looking at elephants and roaming around the river. And I'm looking, I'm hearing this message come through. And um, Trish, my wife, she was just washing some things up in the sink. She said, what, what's the matter with you? And I mouthed the words and said, Paul's dead. Well, it was hard to swallow. And for the next seven days, Tim, and I'm not exaggerating this, I never left my computer. The tweets were coming in at 10,000 a day. Wow. And I was trying to everyone because everybody was looking to me to confirm it. Nobody would believe that Paul was no longer with us. A famous cyclist saying, look, it's not true, is it? And I said, it is. Um, so it went on. And Paul was always very proud of the fact we, we'd worked together for 33 years in the business. And that is a record as far as the sports duo on television or anywhere in the world. And he was very proud of that. But as you know, Tim, when we, when we were on the tour, tour down under, um, Paul would always drive because he was a lousy passenger. And uh, it, we would annoy us playing music. But he, his <laughs> other parts were good. He was always first out the car. He knew every pie shop in South Australia. <laughs> exactly what time and when we get there and he'd just have time to get the pies and very often he'd be running from the pie shop to the car because the race is coming up behind us the big peloton and i'd see the pies come through the window literally flying red up <laughs> back through the window and he'd jump in and run away uh, and that was paul he was a, he was a great motivator but you know he raced as a pro and he rode seven tours to france and he the reason he kept his contracts at the highest level was because he kept people amused, entertained, and the morale high. And that was the reason Paul kept his job, because he was a great cyclist, but he was never going to win the Tour de France. But he was in the team because the guys who get low morale, who could win the Tour de France, it was his job to bring that morale back up to scratch and say, what's up with you? Get out there tomorrow and show them how good you are. And that would be Paul and get you back on song. Phil, do you have a, do you have a personal highlight yourself? You said you called 48 Tour de France. Did Anyone stick out? Must be lots. The tour is a very special thing, Shane Lee. It's an unbelievable... When I first went there in 1973 as a driver for for who was the television commentator at the time, and then five years later, he sadly was killed in a car crash and the television company offered me the job and that's how my life started. But with the Tour de France, it's... People say, why on earth do you follow the same event every year? And the answer is because you never see the same event twice. 
it's a very there's never the same bride face twice and so you get your stories and you you're moving to a family of five to eight thousand people most of whom you never see in that, that one month on the road but you're doing the same job with them and you can write a story on any of them there's only 190 riders in the tour de france the rest are followers just to yeah. keep the show on the road but if you're talking competitively wise the the best tour I think I've ever covered was the return of Greg LeMond in 1989. Mm -hmm. Greg won the tour in 1986. Uh, then he went uh, turkey hunting with his brother-in-law and his brother-in-law shot into the bush, but it wasn't a turkey in the bush. It was in fact Greg LeMond and he put 200 pellets in his back. And many oh. of those pellets are still in the wall of Greg's heart right now. But uh, it put him out of the action for two years. And Jeez. he came from a wheelchair back to the Tour de France in 1989. And lo and behold, he won the race. And he didn't have the best team in the Tour to jack him up either. I think only three of them got to the finish line of the, of the team, which was nine months strong in those days. And he got there and he, and he yeah. won the Tour. But the thing was that coming into the last stage, um, Laurent Fignon, who'd won the Tour in 83 and 84, he had a lead of 50 seconds. We were outside the Palace of Versailles for the final day of racing, only down to the Champs-Élysées, a mere 24 kilometres, a 50-second lead over Greg LeMond. It's a time trial. You do it alone against the watch and in the reverse order of the race order. So the last man to start is Fignon. The man just in front of him was Greg LeMond. Mm. I said to Paul Sherwin, as we recorded the beginning uh, for London's television at the time, I said, well, Paul, who's going to win? And he said, well, it's got to be Laurent Fignon, he said. He lives in Paris. He's a very intelligent guy. He rides a brilliant time trial. He's in the yellow jersey. And above all, he's French. And so he's going to win. And so I looked at Paul, looked back to the camera and said, well, that's Paul's opinion, but I think that Greg Lamont's going to win. And I reckon he'll win by six seconds. And we stopped the tape. The tape was satellited to London to be bolted onto the front of the live show going out from two o'clock in the afternoon. Paul and I were driving for a coffee to the Champs-Élysées. He said, what do you say that for? I said, of course, Fignon's going to win, Paul, but I, wanna, I don't want the viewers to turn off. I want to see this. And I said, and if he wins, it won't be by very much, will it? Okay. So I went six seconds. Well, as they hit the line, uh, Greg Lamont finished just ahead of, um, of uh, Laurent Fignon, and we'd... Paul had done a brilliant job of noting the gain of Le Monde every kilometre, which is around 1.2 seconds, and a little bit more time. He crossed the line with a time. So now we knew what time Fignon had to do to win the Tour de France. They had to be within the 50 seconds better than, than Greg's time. That 50 seconds expired, some 150 metres from the line. I just counted him down. I said, I don't believe it. Greg Lamont has just won the Tour de France by eight seconds. Well, the executive producer who in those days was in London, put the key mm. over in London, and he simply said in my ear, next time, Liggett, get it bloody right. <laughs> yeah. I had Lamont crying on my immediate left and jumping in the air, screaming with his wife, Cathy, I've won the Tour de France again. I had Fignon lying on the, the cobblestones of the Champs-Élysées like a fetus, and, and he was in tears. And the three of us looked the right set of people. But it was the most amazing end to a Tour de France. Wow. 
that Sorry. could never be repeated. To this day, they've never held a time trial on the final stage ever since. What a delightful way to finish up our chat. I could talk to you all day. And, and Greg Lamont, what a, what a delightful individual he is, who was a special guest at the, the Tour Down Under one year. Uh, Phil, let's talk real soon. I can't wait. My shout on the beer and the pie when we all meet again. I think everyone will be looking forward to a bit of humanity. And we look forward to watching the film the voice of cycling. Thanks so much, Tim. Well, you're 20,000 kilometres away, so you're safe at the moment from spending all that money on me. But uh, (laughs) the film I'm looking forward to, I cry every time I watch it, and I reckon many of the people who see it will have a little tear. Um, But it is a fabulous film, and the guys from Milton, they're the... Totally their responsibility. They've done a great, great job. It goes on the cinemas, by the way, March the 11th, all over Australia. Brilliant, Phil. Thanks for your time, mate. That's it for Afternoon Sport today. We'll be with you Monday to Friday every week. Hit subscribe on your podcast app so you don't miss it. A big thank you goes out to Phil Liggett and Brett Kamali, our wonderful sponsors as well, Shane. Yes, Spartan Sports, www.spartansportshq.com. Yeah, they do a great job and it's great to have them on board, as does our producer, Dan McHugh. See you tomorrow. We'll see you then, guys.